Today on the podcast, we I sat down with Mike Malisi, who is the president of ChronoTrack, uh, one of the world's largest timing companies. The orange boxes that you've seen on course at the New York City Marathon and so many other races around the world. We talk a little bit about uh, how Mike found his way into the industry, uh, some of the effects of COVID this year on our industry, as well as unpacking uh, 2018 race experience that Mike had up in Leadville, Colorado at the Leadville 100 stage race. So the day didn't quite, or the days didn't quite end the way that Mike had planned, but uh, learned a lot of valuable lessons and uh, promises to come back on the show when he writes the wrongs that Leadville dealt to him. So without further ado, let's go. Welcome to the Athlinks Podcast. I'm your host, Troy Busso, coming to you from a secure bunker deep beneath the Rocky Mountains. It is November of 2020, and this is episode three. What's up, Mr. Malisi? Hello, Mr. Busso. How are you? I'm doing very, very well on the show. Um, we will, we, uh, we just introduced you, but, uh, we have Mike Malisi here from ChronoTrack, So a friend of the podcast to be sure. Um, but, uh, Mike, why don't you introduce yourself, uh, a little bit, uh, in your role at ChronoTrack for our listeners. Sure. Um, this is my first podcasting experience. So full, full disclosure there. Um, I'm Mike Malisi. I'm the president of ChronoTrack. I have been for a little under two years now, uh, just under five years with the company. And then I've been in this particular industry for uh, about a decade altogether. So you were with, um, you were with Competitor Group uh, before this with RaceIt specifically. So what, what year was this? RaceIt Race stopped uh, uh, business a couple of years back. But what, so what race or what year would this have been about? This would have been... 2012 or 20, okay. 2012 or 2013. Okay. Yeah. So race, it was race. It was kind of like the first race. It was an, an interesting company. It was like the first challenger to active.com. It, it got active kind of reigned supreme for a long time. They were a first mover in the endurance market. They gobbled up some other platforms and whatnot through acquisitions and organically things like that. They were a real powerhouse and race. It was the first kind of custom. IT shop registration company. Um, yeah. It was one of the first ones to come onto the scene. And at that, at that point, there was a bunch of registration companies when I came into the space in 2012, 2013. Then immediately afterwards, it felt like once a week, there was a new registration company, the fr- like the first running USA. I remember I went to before I even worked at, at Race It when I was still in insurance. There was like 40 or 50 reg companies yeah. at, at running USA. But anyway, so I, I got, I, got, I totally got hooked on it. I liked the industry. I liked a lot of the things that a lot of people like about it. You know, it's, it's nice. It's nice and casual. It's a very friendly, kind industry. Um, and it's just, it's just, it's just, it's built on this like foundation of health and happiness that I just thought was so attracted to because it's the polar opposite of what the insurance industry is like, which is just about margin and dollars and claims and cases and it's 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 really not a it's not a it's not a particularly pleasant industry yeah. but i really liked this one um <clears throat> and i immediately kind of kind of jumped on board with race it as soon as i could dove into it and i ended up being there for about uh three and a half years 
And at that point, competitor group was in the process of kind of deciding to, to get rid of that platform. It was aged and outdated and they were, they were kind of looking to make a move, try some other, try some other things. Um, and so I just kind of said, okay, the writing's on the wall. It's time for me to move on. And I was actually about to head back into the insurance industry, um, which I was very comfortable with. And I said, you know, there's only one place I really care to care to work elsewhere in this industry, which was ChronoTrack. And I had that point of view just because when I had started studying the industry after I got to race it, um, one of the things that we very quickly uncovered was these standalone registration companies, companies that just do reg, not donations, not fundraising, not timing. Um, we just didn't see much of a future in it. It was too niche. And it felt a little bit like, like probably web designers did way back at the beginning where everybody had a, it was, it was a custom web page, a lot of labor involved, and then ultimately became really simple and commoditized. And we kind of thought the same thing would happen to registration companies. A lot of them would, would probably die out unless they had some more prongs to their value prop. And I was afraid of ChronoTrack competing against them. I thought of them as kind of the, the dark horse that could sneak up and take me out if, uh, if they wanted to. Um, but also fascinated by the combination of software, uh, registration, donations, those kinds of things, but also the, the introduction of hardware, an actual, yeah. an actual tangible good, a thing that the ChronoTrack made and an expensive thing, expensive, expensive product in those controllers and all the miscellaneous timing equipment. And I just saw that as a gigantic point of, of leverage for ChronoTrack and a, and a gigantic opportunity um, to, to kind of layer in a lot of the things that I felt ChronoTrack was lacking on top of this gigantic um, point of leverage they had as, as a company uh, doing the timing for most events in, in the United States in particular. And so anyway, I, I reached out um, at the time and said, listen, you guys don't know me, but I'm about to leave this industry. There's only one place I would actually like to go, which is ChronoTrack. And can we talk? I ended up talking with Kimo Seymour, who's now my boss. Uh, he said, yeah, sure. Let's, let's see what you got. I think a week later, I flew out to Louisville, Colorado, met with uh, Kimo, met with you, met with a couple other people at the time that, that interviewed me. And um, I think maybe two weeks later, I was an employee. Yeah, I, I, it's not an accident that I got to Chrono Track, but I, I, my path was going a different direction. I intended to go back into insurance, and I just took a flyer at at Chrono Track, and it worked out. And that was, yeah, was four, uh, four and a half years ago. So it's working out. Yeah, quickly. I think you and you and I had forgotten that we had met uh, a few years earlier in a in a basement meeting uh, with with folks who will not be named, but um, it was pretty funny. We were sort of like couple minutes into the interview, it's like, wait a second, we, we were in a meeting together years ago. So, yeah. and as I recall, you hated me. Um, I, so I, I'm pretty sure I hated you. What I remember about that meeting, which really wasn't, it wasn't that dramatic. It was just, it was just kind of a bad, awkward meeting, but I remember you and I as kind of being like innocent bystanders in a really yes. bad meeting where some other people were flexing their muscles and yeah. stuff like that. And yeah, I, I remember thinking you were in hindsight, you were probably just quiet. I remember thinking you were, um, I don't know, condescend arrogant or, or something. I remember thinking like, what's this guy's problem? How come he's not chiming in? And I think it's because <laughs> you probably realized before I did that, ugh, this meeting is not going to go well. This is not a good conversation. So we're not on the same page at all. Yeah, that that's uh, yeah. That, that sounds about right. But yeah. um, look how it all worked out fine. Now we're, uh, I guess we're sisters. We work for sister companies, so we're sisters. Yeah, 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. Um, so how, uh, what, did you ever, I mean, this is the type of thing that happens all the time, right? You just, you'd sort of end up in the, in an unknown place for the right reasons and then it becomes the right place. But did you, I mean, when you were blowing up those finisher arches and things like that, did you, I mean, was that an, was it an industry you were really pursuing? I mean, you mentioned it before, like you can't, you can't throw a rock without hitting a great story in our, in our space. I mean, just talking to the athletes, watching people, cross finish lines. We, we call it that reignition moment where you, you see it on their faces. These people are just, they're, they're a hundred yards out from the finish line. They're, they're kicking themselves in the ass. Like, why the hell did I even do this race? I hate it. It's the most awful thing I've ever done. And then every step closer to that finish line, you just see them light up, right? They're just like, holy shit, when's my next, uh, when's my next race? So, um, it's an easy thing to fall in love with when you're around it. But did you, one, did you, did you actively really like, okay, this is where I want to be. And then two is, did you think you'd be here, you know, whatever it is, uh, almost 10 years later? Well, no, no and no, I, I didn't actively seek it out. And I, once I sought it out, I, I didn't expect to be there for a long time. And on the, on the former point, the not seeking it out, I don't, I don't think I had any understanding that there was an actual industry that supported, right. that, that surrounded these races. It's, it's, it's cause it's, you know, it's pretty unknown. I, I remember, yeah. I remember the first time I realized, oh, the Shamrock Marathon, I just kind of assumed like the city of Virginia Beach owns that race or operate. Yeah. I, I thought of it more as like a, a large scale parade or something, probably, or, or more accurately, yeah. I probably just never thought about it at all. It didn't occur to me because, you know, out on the race course, there's cops and firemen and ambulances and all the normal city infrastructure stuff. It just never occurred to me that there was individuals, you know, behind that. Yeah. And I'm, I'm sure I had heard of, I had probably heard of BAA and I'd probably heard of New York Roadrunners and some of those, some of those things I was familiar with, but I just, like I said, I was blissfully unaware of how much um, infrastructure was actually behind a lot of those events and, and making them happen. So I, I definitely didn't stick yeah. it out because I just was oblivious. I didn't know anything was there to be sought out. Um, and then once I got there, when I first started at race it in particular, <clears throat> My first thought, my first thought was, okay, I was, I was correct in my self-assessment that I was weak on technology. I was like, yep, nailed that one. I, I don't, I don't know anything about this stuff. And so I had a series of um, missteps, especially at the beginning. There was things I was really good at, which was like the, the, the registration side of this industry had become very commoditized but it had grown up registration in the industry had grown up all about features and benefits. Like this product can do this thing that this other reg platform cannot do. And I don't think most people in the endurance space knew how to sell commodities. Meaning if, if all things are equal, whether yeah. it's a can of corn or an insurance product, or in this case, a registration company in 2013, if all the products that they compete with are virtually the same, how do you distinguish your thing from someone else's thing? which insurance and financial services people do all day long. That's their entire job is building yeah. relationships and leveraging those relationships because the products are all very similar. And so I was really excited to be able to bring that to the company. So they, oh, listen, yeah. listen, I know how to do this. And yeah. I, I did a lot of teaching people about how to sell, but then internally within the company, like for example, I remember trying to mimic 
the terminology and the nomenclature that people would use in meetings, whether it was a product meeting or a roadmap review or something with an engineer or whatever. <clears throat> and I didn't, I didn't do that to be flippant or arrogant. I did it because I just, I so, I so genuinely wanted to contribute and to learn the tech, the technology side of things and the languages. And I, may, I had a bunch of missteps where I would tell someone, Hey, listen, I want you to build this thing in this way with this particular feature. And I was advising them incorrectly on what to build in the first place, just because of my, my uh, naivete in, in joining the, the industry. And so there was a few times where I realized, okay, stop, don't try to be a technologist. Talk the way you talk and let somebody else decipher. That's, yeah. that's what the business needs. And certainly it, took, it, took, it just took a while to kind of settle into that. I'm still definitely well, not a technologist in, in any way. It's it's amazing how I mean because you and I I think both had a very similar impression of the industry. I did not come from endurance before. Frankly, I had even started Athlinks. Um, you know, I I came from definitely outside of it. And for a for an industry that touches you know call it eighteen million ish people in the U.S. a year, um, you know thirty to forty million outside of it, depending on how you define racing, uh, thirty to you know. 40,000 small businesses uh, in in the U.S. who put on races and things like It's a very kind of invisible industry. And the software side of things, the product side was everybody, I mean, one, it's an incredibly regional business. So the practices and, and um, products are literally different north to south, east to west, you know, things like you know, uh, scrolling results on video screens versus printable results versus those types of things. And so what what we've seen in our industry are so many small solutions, you know, spun up by a timer who happens to work, you know, as an engineer during the week, and then they'll just create this little solution to run their business. You know, the guy at the, uh, you know, the event that, uh, you know, next door, they start using it. And sometimes they never really grow beyond that. And so you have these all of these different solutions and then the efforts to kind of roll these things up into one have, you know, met with varying degrees of success. And that's really where kind of you came in on the chrono track side of things is it had, it had passed from a single solution world where you had, you know, active at the time was just registration. Chrono track started as just timing. And then you start to converge all the things in between the scoring, the donations and, you know, photography and things like that. So um, it's been a, a, a fascinating uh, uh, experience watching the industry itself mature, but not to the point of like a, you know, you mentioned Silicon Valley earlier. It's, it's not a, it's not a space that really, and in fact, the, the very slick, uh, glossy Silicon Valley types of solutions that have entered the market, you know, every year, um, those are the ones that tend frankly not to stick around too long. It's, it's kind of those homegrown solutions that it's, it's a very, uh, uh, intricate industry in terms of how things are used and how they have to function that I think a lot of outsiders who come in identifying the industry as like, oh, I want to be in there. You really have to get your, you know, kind of to your point, like the, you got to get your hands super dirty before you understand what the heck's going on. <clears throat> yeah. There's no, it's, it's amazing how much has changed in a, in a, in a decade. So 2010 through 2020, if you forget about the COVID stuff, of course, just the technology that wraps around 
the industry. There's still RFID timing for technology and everything is still web-based for <clears throat> registration and things like that. But like the number of players involved is far lower now than it was in 2010. There were dozens and dozens or hundreds and hundreds of technology players because I think a lot of people kind of discovered the industry. It was hidden for a long time beneath um, concert venues and other forms of entertainment and stuff like that. It's a niche within a niche. It's a niche within fitness. It's a niche within participatory events. It's a niche within everything. And so you had a lot of scenarios. I think we had like two guys in a basement that could stand up a registration company within a couple weeks if they had, you know, two or three decent customers and a bunch of small ones, you know, two guys in a basement could make a living doing that for X amount of time. But then when that, when that technology after it degrades um, and needs to be replenished and the bigger, the bigger the book of business gets and the more customization that's needed to support that, I think what we saw from 2013 to about 2018 was a lot of them then just started to, to implode. You know, the, the foundation was fragile. They had a couple good years when things were hot. And then when the industry contracted a little bit at the same time that there was just too much supply of all these different technology companies, you know, survival, yeah. of, the fittest, survival of the fittest uh, ensues. So I don't know if it evolved. Doesn't didn't feel like much of that was by design or even intentional. There was just a series of events that all kind of compounded and interacted with each other. And yeah. here we are 10 years later with far fewer players serving an industry that's about the same size. Yeah, it's an interesting space because you basically have Black Friday every single weekend from a support and, um, uh, you know, from a software standpoint. So you have, whether it's rush registration, rush scoring, you know, getting results out and things like that. So it's mm -hmm. a, it is, it is extremely hard to scale the business um, you are absolutely a victim of your own success over and over and over. And we, and that's the thing that I think we've seen uh, time and time year over year is, you know, if you can't scale the back office, the support side of things, you know, you have a bad day, somebody, you know, whether it's fire, natural disaster event gets canceled, you have to issue 500 refunds up uh, that has sunk companies where they just couldn't keep up with those administrative um, tasks and things like that. So it's a, yeah. uh, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned um, COVID a second ago. Let's, let's, um, you know, sort of the elephant in the room. Obviously our industry has been uh, ravaged by uh, COVID as have a lot of them. Um, how has, how has COVID affected ChronoTrack? Uh, good and bad, I suppose, if, if there have been any positives. Uh, but what is your what has been your experience since, you know, kind of early March when this thing started really uh, tearing through the U.S.? Or if you want to even go back uh, before that, where, you know, we have a lot of Asian customers and European. Yeah, yeah so Kronotrack operates all over the world. Um, we have multiple offices all throughout the world. And, we, you know, our, our equipment is used to time tens of thousands of events and multiple millions of athletes all throughout the world. So we, we are, we're, we're just, we're everywhere. And so it didn't really start in March. It really started in late December of 2019 was when you started to hear the whispers of, Hey, there's this thing in China, Wuhan, the word Wuhan started to get thrown around and stuff like that. And then Chrono track while, while, the, while domestically everything was fine until very late March, really in January and then especially in February of 2020 is when we started to see events um, suspended or postponed. <clears throat> and at the time it was, it was a lot of like, well, 
you know, we're going to, we're going to move it from uh, March until May, or we're going to move it until June, or we're going to move it to September, but it was really isolated to China proper. And then the, you know, the outlying countries out on the, on the border of China, then it started to spread pretty quick. And then all of a sudden it was just everywhere. Every, everyone yeah. all at the same time. Yeah. Was it, was it Tokyo or Singapore marathon or like right off the bat around when uh, January, when we were in conference, one of them, one of them canceled right away and it seemed so premature and crazy at the time. Uh, I think that was uh, Tokyo because everybody took note because it was, it was Tokyo. It was one of the world's yeah. the world marathon majors. And uh, I think it was Tokyo that you're referring to that would have been around the time of our conference in the end of January. Yeah. And it just, I remember everybody just sort of like, man, what a, what a knee jerk reaction, crazy. How can they do this? And then, you know, obviously, you know, in the following weeks at all, it turned out to be very, uh, very prescient. Well, I think it was ignorance at the time and it's just your, um, whatever the, the stages of denial are, you know, you start out going like, ah, that's silly. Uh, that doesn't matter. It's like just a way to deflect the potential risk of something you're seeing somewhere else. So everybody did that, myself included. It was like, oh, they're overreacting. Okay, well, it won't come here. Well, it's 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 not as bad as the flu. It's all the things that everybody said back then. The, the only thing that was different for us, well, the reason I started talking about that was our our lens was just a little longer on that because we were sitting here going, okay, this could impact in Asia. Oh, okay, it is impacting us in Asia. Okay, now it's in India. Okay, now it's in Australia. Yeah. And then it was Europe here, boom. And it just, like I said, it just, it just clobbered us. So we, we were kind of braced for it earlier than most American businesses. Yeah. Um, but it was no less, uh, you know, catastrophic when it, when it arrived because we went, we went through in the, the very end of March I forget, I forget the date that Trump announced the uh, European travel ban. I want to say it was March 17th and March 18th or 19th or something, whatever the date was somewhere, somewhere in there. That, that date just, that was the trigger that then all day, every day for a week or two, it was this one dropped, this one dropped, this one's deferred, this one's suspended. This one's now next year. This one's just flat out canceled. This one's doing refunds. This one's not. And it was just boom, 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 one after another for, for weeks. And, uh, and then of course, everybody was talking about, well, <clears throat> uh, you know, at, at that point it was still, it seems silly now, but it was 15 days to stop the spread. Remember yeah. that? I mean, that's, that soundbite is like lost already, but so that, that would have been, I guess in March at the, at the very end of March, that's when, yeah, we did, we just did a, we pulled a bunch of data for wall street journal this week and it really shows up March 8th is when race volume, the week of March 8th to 15th was cut in half and then half to well, and then after that, it went down ninety six percent. Yeah, so maybe it's the fourteenth is the date that yeah. I'm, that I'm thinking of. Whatever, whatever date he announced the yeah the ban. But yeah, so the the impact of us since then has been it, honestly it's devastating. Uh, we have we have an entire industry, generally speaking, that's just not allowed to do what it wants to do. And when we talked before about it being kind of a niche industry, niche within a niche, or an industry that's kind of ignored under the radar, this this whole scenario is probably the, the biggest spotlight on that particular nuance of our industry. A timer told me um, a couple, it's probably a couple months ago now, but they were, they were lobbying the local government, the local municipality <clears throat> that they could put on a race. They could do it safely. They could follow all the social distancing criteria. And the person from the municipality said something like, listen, we get it. We, we believe what you're saying. We just don't have time to put on your parade with all the other things that are going on right now. 
And the race director timer was like, it's not a parade. You, you don't understand what yeah. we're talking about. And I just thought that was such a revealing comment. It's just one example, but it's, it's this, this thing, like this thing that's so special about our industry, what it brings to people's lives. And especially during COVID, all of the things that are the best practices for fighting off the illness, th- this industry and these types of events provide that. They serve it up every weekend for people. Um, and they're just, we're just not allowed to proceed because it's just seen as small or not relevant or secondary to whatever bars, restaurants, movie theaters, all the other things. It's, it, 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 I think people understand what it is when they're told about it, but they don't think about it as what's an essential type of business that we want to bring back health clubs and gyms. Yep. That, that seems to be simple for people to, to make it resonate for them. But 5Ks and half marathons, I think it, it, one of the, the biggest issues we have right now is I think those things are perceived as being frivolous or discretionary or whatever, not as important as other types of businesses that are struggling to open now. Yeah, I think the, the two things on that, that that I think have been most disappointing in all of this is the lack of, um, I think, you know, health-related advice. Um, you know, coming from the experts in terms of, you know, I mean, I think we know certainly enough about things going on right now in terms of just, you know, th- your best defense is obviously health. Yeah. Um, so that's one. And then two is just the the terrible irony of that both racing and gyms, uh, of which we are part of both in the, you know, our parent company is Lifetime Fitness. Um, but the uh, reality or perception of you know, grunting and spitting and sweating at a gym or a race is, you know, it's, it's both a way to, to stave it off, but also potentially a way to, uh, you know, to spread the, um, the side. So, um, you know, I don't know, I think, you know, we're probably going to get people who are either, uh, furiously fast forwarding through this part or, uh, uh, you know, nodding in agreement. So it, it's the, the, the third side of that is just how polarizing this whole thing has been. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, the reality is you, you or I are not going to be able to affect it too much, but, um, I think how it has hit our industry, um, is an interesting or an important story to tell, frankly, because as you said, it's, um, it's a small niche industry. It affects so many people in a positive way. Uh, the 30,000, uh, small businesses that have been affected literally just overnight, just, you know, having to, you know, furlough their entire staffs. Um, and we're starting to see some races come back, which is fantastic. Uh, but I think again, at, at from March to last week, when we ran the data, we were at 95% uh, down uh, in timed athlete volume yeah. for the year yeah. in the U.S. Yeah. And that, that makes sense. That's pretty consistent with what most of us are experiencing right now. So there's some virtual stuff that helped a little bit. There's some challenges and things like that that helped a little bit there's a there's a tremendous amount of donating and charitable giving that's going on right now so all those things are are great they just don't necessarily directly benefit the the core race directors and operators in this industry or the uh the core technology providers that support it as well well. you you guys do registration on your site so what were you seeing in terms of i don't know if you can boil it down to a percentage but when the races started um a lot of races showed like you had i think they gave the athletes the uh option to refund or defer to when the race was rescheduled um do you have a, a sense for what percentage people opted for whether it was the refund or the the deferment 
deferral? Uh, I, I don't off the top of my head. I, there was definitely, there was definitely two trends at first. The trend was postpone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then that, and then, then once people realized, okay, this is not going to be a 30 or 60 or 90 day thing. Then there was a wave of, like you said, uh, events that either canceled and refunded or, or yeah. deferred to the um, uh, postpone until the subsequent year. I don't know how many gave an, gave an option. I, I think at, at it, the, the people I feel the worst for the, the race directors that I think were hit the worst um, were the ones from that had a race that was somewhere in the end of March to maybe the full month of April. Yeah. Because those, those races, <clears throat> as a, a lot of people know, um, they, they'd already, they'd already sunk all the cost into putting on that event, the cops and the sanitation and the band and the, all, a lot of those things were already paid for. Yeah. So t- talk about that a little bit. Cause you, you've been on, you know, race it. And I know you've got, um, family, uh, who are part of a, a big race, um, uh, up where you guys are talk, talk a little bit. Cause I don't think a lot of people understand the full economics of putting on a race. Um, and you know, I think they just, I don't know if they just picture a big pile of cash sitting there, but the, the cost structure. Uh, so when you pay $50 to, to go into a race, um, what happens to that money? Well, is your, is your email program open? Like, do you have Outlook or something open? We keep getting the dings. I don't know how loud it is for people in their, in their headphones. Well, I'll take full responsibility for that. It's now closed. So hopefully no more pings. Um, I'm sure a race director, a real race director, which I'm definitely not. I've never, I've never coordinated a race on my own. They'd probably say, I don't know what I'm talking about right now. But generally speaking, I would say most races, the race opens for registration. You can register for the race somewhere between six months and 10 months, maybe 12 months, depending on the race, prior to the race actually happening. Mm. And that, that race, whoever puts on that thing, no, no different than a wedding planner, even though the date is six or nine or 12 months in the future, they need to start spending money um, to secure that date by permits. There's money that goes with all that, depending on the, the location of the race. Sometimes they're uh, paying for extra police. Sometimes they have to pay for overtime. They have to pay for sanitation. They're booking bands. There's a tremendous amount of infrastructure, whether it's food, water, uh, goodie bags, a lot, of those, a lot of those things that you get when you finish the race on race day are ordered and paid for in full or in part, like I said, three months, six months, nine months, 12 months ahead of time. Yeah. And so these race directors, race operators really have the same um, challenge as like a wedding planner and that it's a very weather dependent thing. One really special, really important day that you might, you might plan a whole year for. They have the disadvantage of at least a wedding planner typically has like a backup location, a rainy day location or, or something. If you need to quote unquote move things indoors, you just can't do that for a 5k or a half marathon or a triathlon or, or whatever. So they're even more dependent on um, having an acceptable weather or uh, safety or whatever day on the actual day, the, the day of the race. So the, 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 the athlete runs the race on race day, but the party has been planned and paid for many, many months or years ahead of time by that race director. The, the point being in March and April, those that were just kind of told you're not allowed to operate your race. You don't even have a choice were completely stuck. They had already, these are all small business operators, mom and pop 
shops, very cottagey industry for the most part. There's very little big business in here. So it's, it's mostly individual um, shareholders. And, uh, you know, those, a lot of those race directors were told, say, sorry, you, you can't have the race. Yeah. So then a lot of athletes, I think, um, not, not irrationally would say, well, then I want my money back if I can't come. And the race director is completely, completely stuck. You know, yeah. the, the, the event was paid for, intended to happen. The fact that it didn't, a lot of them couldn't do a, couldn't do a damn thing about it. So yeah. a lot of people that were just were stuck. And then all of that was obviously magnified and, and compounded by just the state of people's minds. Then everybody was just losing, everybody was going bananas. It was, you know, is this going to wipe us all out or is it all fake? Is it political? Is it a, is it a scam? Like no, nobody knew what to think. And so everybody started hoarding, um, you know, when people, it's human nature, when people sense danger, they protect their families, they protect their home. They worry about food, water, shelter, warmth, things like that. And they want to hoard every penny they have in case things get really bad. And yeah. so it just, it just, that was a very, a very natural thing that fear triggered people to seek refunds or just yell or do, do whatever. Um, at a bunch of race directors and operators who couldn't do a damn thing about it because if, if you compare them to wedding planners, the, only, the, the most important thing of their year is that particular date. They would do anything to make sure that date goes off without a hitch. And most of them um, yeah. just, just had the rug pulled out from under them, having nothing to do with, yeah. with them. It was, it was just bad for everybody all around. Yeah. And, and I think... I, 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 I think everybody... I, I don't know how much of that is, is a surprise for your, um, for your listeners, but I would switch to the thing that actually gives me hope. Like everybody knows, yep, COVID was bad. It shut us, they shut us down. Our industry was hurt worse than most. The, the thing that I feel good about is the, all, the industry at large, the quote unquote industry, they're all still here. Everybody's for the most part talking about what they're going to do next. They're planning and replanning and reorganizing based on all these changing regulations. And that, that gives me a lot of hope. You, you don't, you, we didn't have a tremendous amount of industry people that said, well, I'm done with this. Right. I'm just going to retire. I'm going to go, I'm going to go get a, a new career. They, they want it to come back. And yeah. those are people that really know how to execute on those races. And I think it's a good thing for the athletes that those race directors are doing whatever they can to stick it out. And then for the race directors, the thing that gives me hope for them is just the, the nature of the, let's say the products they provide a race that experience <clears throat> you've heard me say this a bunch of times, but my, my number one, absolute number one favorite thing about this industry is watching finish lines. Bunch of period, bunch of people cheering at the start line is, is awesome. Photography on course is awesome. The bands are great. The beer tents are cool. The swag is awesome. Super cool metal. It's all wonderful. But my, my personal favorite part is watching athletes of all different calibers cross the finish line. Whether it's the guy that finished first or someone wearing a tutu and a silly hat that walks across with 10 of their friends to, to be the um, last person across the finish line. If you just watch the different emotions of, of all those people, it, it just never stops fascinating me that you see people cross the finish line and they, they break down and sob or they throw themselves on the ground in just pure exhausted joy. Yeah. And the biggest thing that sticks out to me is people will take both, both fists, both arms and stick them straight up in the air, look up at the, the sky and scream something, you know, and I just, I just think it's such a, 
Oh, my nipples are bleeding. What's that? Oh, my nipples are bleeding. (laughs) Yeah. Well, then forget about that for a minute when they cross the finish line and throw the hands up in the air. It's just, I just don't think there's many other things you can make as a company or services you can provide that are so viscerally special to the person consuming them, the athlete crossing the finish line that it makes a, what else in your life do you, do you do or right. eat or buy or use where when you use the thing, you throw your hands up in the air and yeah. scream and it, it might make you cry for joy. There's, there's not that much. No, there's not that much yeah. It's a wonderfully special thing. And so anyway, it's a little dramatic whenever I say it that way, but it, it really is the thing that I think kind of makes the, the uh, industry. It's the glue that I think yeah. holds it all together. I don't think and it, it, I don't think it's overly dramatic at all. Yeah. I, it's the thing that gives me the most hope and I guess more importantly, the most confidence um, in everything coming back and coming back really powerfully. Like pe- people might be hesitant to go back to a movie theater. I think that would make sense. People that have done these races before or people that are looking to get out of the house after yeah. being cooped up for nine, 10, 12 months, whatever. I, I think, I think they're going to come back in droves once there's a, a, a more, um, uh, acceptable, consistent way that they know it's they know it's safe to to do yeah. so, and I I think this industry will be like a beacon for hey this this thing came back too look at this it came back it came back quickly people are healthy there's more people running and exercising and riding bikes than ever before bikes yeah. and running shoes sales are going through the roof so there's a lot of underlying indicators that okay there's there's still interest here yeah uh, not only is there interest there's real passion behind it. And then the one other thing that I would layer on top of that is the nature of this industry is really weird. It, it tends to operate inversely to how the economy operates, meaning actually you, you, actually you, were, you were probably the first person that showed me this in actual data. But if you go back to um, 2008 through 2010, when the economy tanks, we see a tremendous running boom because no different than... People might be afraid to go out and get dinner because they don't want to spend too much money, but they'll go out for frozen yogurt with their kids for something to do in a sense of normalcy when times are tough. Yeah. I think our industry is a lot, a lot of the same as a, a health club membership or an expensive bike or a vacation might be too much or seem, um, seem too much during, during tough times. But anybody can buy a pair of running shoes sure. and, uh, and go out for a jog and, and, yeah. and get into running or, or cycling or whatever their, their thing is. So it, yeah. it is a, a really tough time, a uniquely tough time for our industry within all the other um, industries that are out there. But I just have, I have faith and confidence and uh, quite a bit of hope that it's, it's going to come back and it's going to seem a thousand times better than it ever was before yeah. to actually be out there again for the first time, first couple of times after all this, it's going to be yeah. amazing. Yeah, I have, an, I have a notion. You and I have talked about this. I, I feel, I don't know if it's a prediction or whatever, but it feels like around the time actually you jumped into the industry. So when things like Color Run um, were launching and Spartan and these different races, I, I think what we're going to see here coming into 2021, again, as, as we find the protocols to keep people safe, et cetera, but you're going to, um, it feels like people have just been like, hey, we got nothing to lose. Like, we want to do a cyclocross triathlon or a, you know, a, a, some sort of weird hybrid mud color run, whatever. Um, I think you're going to see a lot of uh, race directors just taking new chances. Things that our, our industry got 
I mean, I, I don't think we realized it at the time, but you know, the retrospect on this is our industry kind of got very serious there toward the end. You had Iron Man, you know, sell for a billion dollars and some of these other, you know, really big transactions. And we kind of forgot that we were, you know, really a smaller industry, really geared toward just helping people you know, live better lives, you know, and, and it like we lost the essence there. Um, everything became very, very serious. And so I think, I think the next five years are going to be just kind of a rip roar and good time as we, you know, un- granted we're going to be building back to where we were in 2019 probably. But no. um, I just, I think, I think we're going to see some new creative, interesting uh, companies pop up that we already have, like in the virtual side of things. Um, and I think again, just um, you, you mentioned it earlier, the, the good, the great news in the long term, the shitty news in the short term is that, the inventory that a that a race has doesn't sit on a on a shelf somewhere where they can, you know, you missed your weekend and you can just sell it the next weekend, right? I mean, it's once it's gone, it's gone. Um, but that that negative in the short term is what I think gives us hope for the long term. In that, it's not a physical good. It is it is the hopes and you know aspirations of crossing that finish line that that race and the, you know, the brand that they've built over time is ultimately sellable. The park's not going anywhere. The road's not going anywhere. The athletes certainly aren't going anywhere. And so when it comes time to come back, it's, it's really no more than a decision to put that race back on and to get people up back out there. And, you know, again, it'll build a little bit, um, you know, but I, I think, I think the, um, just watching as many people as I've seen cross a finish line, that, that hope and that, that uh, sense of accomplishment's not going anywhere. So I think, I think now more than ever, we certainly need it. And um, again, I think, you know, for over the next few years, I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be some of the best times that we've had in a long time in this space. Yeah. And I, I think, I think, I think COVID one of the silver linings of it is it kind of broke apart all the old, like stale um, ways of doing things. It's like the ultimate equalizer in some ways. So if you think about things that are always said within our industry, like um, uh, people don't like to run with their phones. Right. Like, well, they, they may or may not now. It depends. They'll, they'll tell us, they'll show us right now. They're showing us, uh, they don't seem to mind too much because they're all doing it. They're doing these races on their own. They're doing virtual challenges and campaigns and fundraising campaigns, all of which requires them to run with a phone most of the time. Yeah. Um, and, th- and things like that. So I just, I think I'm excited to see what the athletes kind of show us they want yeah. to get back into this. Maybe it's more than they had before. Maybe it's less. But yeah. I do think the I do think the industry and a lot of races kind of fell into like an acceptable mold of what came what 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 was considered a, like a yeah. quote-unquote good race or good experience and they were fun and i haven't been to many bad races they're all a great time right um, but i just even I, the bad I, ones are good in in some odd uh masochistic way you know they're, they're bad weather bad injury bad weather they all make for good stories and yeah. interesting experiences um but well, yeah, I'm, just, I'm, I'm excited to see the mold break yeah. a little bit and and have the the market, the athletes come back and tell us, Hey, I'll come to your race, but I want to see this, this, and this. The mold's so interesting because there are, 
you know, as you and I have put on our product hats over the years, is there, there are certain assumptions that, boy, we, you know, we just have an instinct on some product feature, whatever it is. But um, as you said, so many of these race directors, they have one event a year. That's it. And so they're, you know, Hey, do you want to try this? No, do not mess with my race. You know, we are not implementing, (laughs) test it out on somebody else, but we're not. So you, you have this kind of natural resistance to, um, in general, to, to trying new things, whether it's technology or whatever. And, you know, obviously our industry has been the, um, the recipient of some bad uh, technology meltdowns over the years, whether it was, you know, big rush registrations that got hammed up in the servers and things like that. So, you know, I mean, it's, it's not, it's not undue um, stress and, and uh, hesitance to try new things. But again, you know, as we've both said, it feels like going forward, people are going to be, you know, when you're, when your thousand person race is now a hundred person race, you kind of got nothing to lose. Like just give it a shot, you know? Yeah give it a shot. You know, nobody's going to judge you on it. So what's, um, what's up on the, uh, on the event calendar for you? I know a couple of years back, uh, um, you, uh, you threw your hat in the ring in a big, big way. Um, you had done marathon before, but, um, you tried a little race called the Leadville 100 mountain bike race, the stage race. Um, and, uh, did some training for that. I met you up there and, uh, it was a uh, mixed, mixed results. <laughs> <laughs> it's a tough, you know, it's funny because the, it is both my favorite and least favorite thing about our space. Cause I'm a, I'm, I'm like, like I have an idea. I'm just going to go do it. I'm not going to go, you know, like there's not a whole lot that stands between me getting an idea and trying that thing. And so yeah. on one hand, it's like, I, I love and respect the fact that you were just like, screw it. I'm going to, I'm going to go from sea level to, to 11,000 feet and do a hundred mile mountain bike race over three days with, you know, whatever, 10,000 feet of climbing in there. Um, yeah. but it, it, you know, it's, I think sometimes it can be a little, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're taking off a big, big bite. So let's talk about Leadville a little bit. Uh, yeah. So I, I took a crack at Leadville stage race, which is kind of the, 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 the more approachable uh, version. So there's the actual Leadville 100. There's all kinds of races in, in Leadville um, that Lifetime owns, but the, the, there's the hundred, which is the, you know, Lance Armstrong style race. He literally, you know, he's, he's raced that a couple of times, absolute elite level world-class event. And if your listeners don't know Leadville, it's hard. Leadville is a hard thing to describe. So it's like, if you took a if you took a traditional Colorado ski town, Breckenridge or Aspen or whatever, and if you left it alone for about a hundred years, it would look like that's what Leadville would, would look like. It's it's an actual cowboy mining yeah. adventure. For, but former former mining town. Yeah, it's 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 not it's not a glorious town, but that's kind of what makes it amazing. It's very yeah. genuine and honest, and it's it's one of my favorite places to be. I think it's the highest, it's the highest city or the highest town. I can never remember in the United States. So yep. that the town itself is at like 10,500, something like that. And then, um, you know, you go, you go up above, uh, 14,000 on several of the, the peaks. And if you, if you stand in downtown Leadville, you're standing in front of a saloon, um, next to, you know, a bookstore that's been there for a hundred years next to whatever restaurant that's 
grilling steaks outside and you just have this spectacular 360 degree view of these snow-capped peaks everywhere, except for about two months at the end of every summer where a lot of those peaks dry out and uh, we host a bunch of races in July and August. So anyway, so that's, that's Leadville. It's, it's in my, of all the races I've ever been to or participated in, which I've, I've been to many, I've participated in a bunch, um, Leadville's in my top three, five, yeah. whatever. It's just spectacular. Yeah. Likewise. Um, yeah. And so I, I took a crack at it in 20, um, 19, 29, 20, no. 20, 20, Yeah. And, uh, I guess I went big. So I, I had never done a mountain. I've been a mountain biker since I was about 10, but I'd never done a mountain biking race or any kind of cycling race before the closest that I ever come was a borrowed road bike that for a, uh, Olympic distance triathlon that I did. Um, and so, you know, lifetime, the parent company of chrono track and athletes, um, owns that race. And so I kind of, you know, I knew a guy who knew a guy who could get me a, a spot. Yep. And so I, I got my entry fee. And at the time I was, I really wasn't that focused on the, the race. I was focused on losing weight, which is something I've struggled with for, um, good chunk of my, my adult life. <laughs> and, uh, so I did, I did all these things. I, I knew I was taking on a big challenge. I think I had seven months to get ready. I live in Richmond, Virginia. So my, my home is at 152 feet, I think of elevation. And so I knew elevation was going to be a challenge in addition to just fitness. Yeah. And so I said, I'm really committing to this. I'm turning 40 soon. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta get myself in gear. And I'm part of this industry where I stick out as a, let's say a, the only fat guy in a room. And uh, I just did not like that feeling. And I just wanted to be a healthier person and all that. So I, I announced to pretty much everybody I know that I'm doing Leadville in eight months or seven months or whatever. I had my entry fee and I commenced uh, training like you would. And my, 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 I was actually pretty, pretty pleased with my training altogether, except I, I realized now I didn't do nearly enough to simulate um, altitude. I just didn't do enough climbs. Mm. And so the race itself, you know, it's beautiful, beautiful weather. It's nice and warm. Um, the setting for that race just makes you, you feel like you're, you just feel like a, a mountaineer when you're, when you're up there, just everything about that place just radiates adventure. Yeah. And so I was super excited. My brother, uh, came out and, and did it with me. And, uh, I flew my parents out to watch my kids. Um, cause I had my kids with me that week. So we kind of made it a vacation also. And, um, the, the race kicks off. So stage race is broken. It's the hundred or so uh, miles of Leadville. It breaks it up over three days. So basically you do roughly 40, 42 on day one, um, about a 20 mile, just straight up climb on uh, Columbine pass on day two. And then, uh, you, you know, make your way back on, on day three. And, uh, I basically, the, 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 the way I would say, the way I try to describe it, cause I've been thinking about this for two years. So the, the end of the story I guess is the, my Leadville experience ended in failure. I finished stage one, I finished stage two. And I, 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 when I say I finished stage two, I, I, I imploded horrifically on stage two before that, before stage two even really began that morning, I was coming yeah. unglued. Yeah. I flew or I, I drove up to ride just stage two with you again, no guy, yeah. no guy. So I was able to just jump in it and I didn't, I didn't even know until recently that you did stage two because I left you 
puking <laughs> at the start mm -hmm. line, and I just assumed you didn't do it, and I don't think I saw you again that day. And yeah. then I, I mentioned, well, you didn't do stage two. You said, yeah, yeah, I did. So I felt terrible. I, I would have waited up for you because I went up there explicitly for the purpose of riding it with you to just uh, yeah. you know be some company with you and your brother. Well, truthfully, I'm glad you didn't because it, it would have stressed me out even more. I was so, I, you know, I wasn't even, I, I did, I, I did everything wrong on race weekend and the, the couple days leading up to it. So part of it was just my nerves. I was so nervous for that, that race, especially on day one. I, I think the night before Leadville, I maybe slept an hour and a half or something, broken up over 200 micro naps throughout that, that, that evening. Did the race, uh, did the stage on, on day one, uh, my brother and I, and I had been there the week before and did a, a test ride. I think I put in 26 miles or something and felt, and felt pretty good. So I had the normal race day jitters and all that stuff that I've experienced before. I wasn't really worried about that, but I just didn't, um, I, I managed, so in, in addition to the sleep deprivation on day one, I didn't manage nutrition well. And I let myself get depleted enough that I was nauseous. And so then I, then I uh, puked a couple times on day one, which, you know, then I, I just had a compounding. In the, in the race itself? In the race itself, okay. yeah. I had horrible nausea. Um, I don't think I had altitude sickness at all. I, 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 do, I do pretty well at altitude. I was just so worked up and so exhausted that I, I just had myself, I was in a horrible mental place. Yeah. Then that evening, I was like, okay, I survived day one, had some food. Um, replenish. I actually felt pretty good. Yeah, we met and, up at the uh, restaurant. Uh, you look, yeah, you look great. I saw a couple people that night. I wasn't sore. Like I, I was okay. I was fine. And then I spent that that second night. I didn't sleep again. And I think that was just I knew Columbine Pass was on day two. Yeah. And it's, the joke is elevator going up for for Columbine. It is a straight yeah. up climb. I've never climbed anything like that on a bike. Yeah, it's pretty relentless. Um, yeah, and it's and it's uh, uh whatever eleven or twelve miles up, just up. Yeah, until you get out three quarters of the way up, and then it goes steeper up, up with what they call the goat trail. Yeah. And so I, 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 I was in such a bad place that night, thinking, oh, I'm not ready for this. I, I didn't train enough. I just had myself whipped into a frenzy that I started that day thinking I'm not going to make it, and that, that's never really happened to me before in my in my life, whether it's about business or a, a, an event or yeah. something physical, athletic, family, whatever. I, I just, I haven't experienced that that much, that like preliminary sense of this is going to go really badly. I'm, yeah. I'm a pragmatist, maybe an optimist, but I'm not a pessimist. I'm not negative. I don't assume things are going to go bad. Um, but that, that, that night before, after those two nights back to back where I slept maybe an hour or two a night, I just, my mind was just, I was just, yeah, I was erratic. I screamed at my dad who was there watching <laughs> my children. My brother and I were arguing with each other. I remember coming, I remember seeing you that morning yeah. and, and I said something like, I'm not sure what I should do or what I was almost like looking for an out. I think like, Oh yeah. my God, I, I would have happily paid somebody to hit me in the knee with a baseball bat. So I didn't have to start that day. I was like, I, I just didn't even want to be yeah. there with horrible mental mental place yeah you didn't you didn't look sick you looked broken you you yeah. like you just you you could tell it was um it was uh not to say that it wasn't physical but it it just the emotion that was in your face was um 
uh, yeah, I just, uh, I could tell that this wasn't just about, man, you know, gosh, I wish I could just kick this, this nausea and I can, it, it was just a, um, uh, again, a, a, just a deep, like emotional hurting that it looked like was on your face. Yeah. I, I remember lining up on, at state, the start of stage two, when I was lining up, I, I, I threw up a couple times, uh, next to the car that we had rented, which I, I don't even, I don't think that was altitude. Like I said, I think it was just nerves. I was just yeah. worked up and I hadn't slept and I hadn't eaten well. And, um, but then when I got physically sick, then I was starting to go, what is that? Am I just upset? That's weird. I've never thrown up from being angry before. Um, do I have altitude sickness? Like what, what is this thing? And I just, it just got so worked up in a, in a frenzy. And in that moment, it felt like, Oh my God, I'm not sure what to do. And all my friends are here. My family's here. Like, I can't believe this is not going, not going the way I, I planned or I had, yeah. I had dreamed for Well, and that day too, is you've got, you, like, as you mentioned, the, the mental kind of screwery of that, that stage is you're on, you're on fire road for the first like two thirds or whatever. So as steep as it is, and it's, you know, it's like, uh, it just never ends. And it's these switchbacks, but you're on a nice, you know, like 15 foot wide fire road, gravel road. Um, and then when you hit that goat trail, it's single track. So you're having to get off the trail as people are screaming down. I don't know the, the course I'm guessing by the time you were up there was, was somewhat clear. So it wasn't, you know, uh, crazy. There was a lot of inbound traffic on the way up for me is yeah. the way I would say it. And then, yeah, by the time I hit the goat trail, I, I mean, I was the tail end of that race. Yeah. But it's, I've yeah. never, and by the way, I've never experienced that before either. It's, it's, um, it's weirdly freeing in some ways and it's, but you know, at the same time I'm, I was dead last. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I didn't like that feeling, although now I'm kind of glad I, glad I had it. Mm. But anyway, so uh, one, once we kicked off that day, Um, I've had, I've only, I've only, I've only quit two things in my whole life. Um, and both of them, I, I really genuinely regret. And, uh, and so my, my brother who was riding next to me and was not doing that well either, actually, um, which, which hurt, hurt both of us. We weren't good influences on our, on each other that day. But, uh, I said, I feel terrible. I just, I guess I'm just out of my element. I'm I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna make it. I said, I'm going to climb to this one next hill and let's see what happens. <clears throat> see what happens. I'll see how I feel. <clears throat> Excuse me. So sure enough, we climbed around this little dog leg um, switchback turn. And right there are Ken and Merrily, who are the race directors for Leadville and who I know because we all ultimately work for the same company. And um, <laughs> Ken, Ken is as genuine a Leadville inhabitant as you could possibly have. So he literally cowboy hat, denim jacket, denim pants. He's got a shotgun over his shoulder and he's screaming at people coming by. You got this. You keep going no matter what. Um, and the, and he said, he said, uh, it hit me in the, it hit me like a, a baseball bat. He said the pain of quitting is infinitely worse than the pain you're feeling right now. And that was like, that was like seconds before I had kind of decided I'm just going to make it up to the top of that next little hill. And then that's it for me. We'll just, it was fun. Yeah. I tried. And I was like, I just, so partly just the, the guilt of seeing Ken and then his actual comments literally right there was like, come on, man. So then I turned to my brother and I said, I said, I have to finish today. That's going to be my race is I'm going to, I'm going to break through this. I have to finish today. 
And so we did. So it was, it was me and my brother. And then there was one other guy who we would kind of leapfrog past each other. And then the guy who was, you know, the sweeper picking up, picking yeah. up the tail. And, um, I wonder how many, I wonder how many people could tell that exact same story, whether they're a third from the first, you know, they're in the lead or, or whatever, but just seeing Ken, uh, and just having him, you know, talk to you about grit and the pain and all that stuff. I wonder how many yeah. people have that exact same story. Yeah. Well, my version of it is he was totally right. Is you know now I have I have read in my ledger. I have to go back and wipe that race off my list off my list because I did I did finish stage two. Yeah. Uh, I had to walk a lot of that. I mean, that's it's part of it was the hike for me. That goat path in, yeah. in particular at the top of Columbine is. I don't know how anybody rides up that, but. Um, you know, I, I certainly hiked it, made it to, we, we summited and then, uh, the, the aid station at the top, it started to turn cold. The temperature dropped like 25 degrees and it started to hail a little bit. And this was like July 30th or something. Yeah. And, uh, the lead of that aid station on top of the mountain said, you better get out of here right now. We're, we're packing up and leaving. And so they filled up my camelback with, um, with water and, some supplement and I, I took off and we, we bombed down the, down the hill. And what happened was then I got to the bottom and I said, Oh, we made it. I felt like a million bucks. And because I had set, I had set that objective of like, okay, I'm going to modify the plan here and I am going to finish day, day two, the hardest part I'm finishing day two. Yeah. When we, got, when we got down, I felt great, like mission accomplished. And I just kind of, I just kind of checked out. And I went home, I slept like 13 hours. And I think I woke up at 7.30 or 8 o'clock the next morning. Yeah. And I had announced when I left on day two, I said, I'm done. I'm, I'm going to bow out. <clears throat> I'm DNF, but this was awesome. Um, and when, uh, the next morning after I, I had slept uh, a, a normal amount, when I woke up, I felt fine. I wasn't sore. Mm. I wasn't, I didn't feel anything. And I, I said, I blew it. I completely blew the third day i just i like took a knee instead of so you took your bike out of the corral and everything you 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 totally tapped out at the uh, at the end of the second day like could you have come back in the third morning i well what the mistake i made is so stupid in hindsight but mike melly who's the race director for for leadville um was in the corral in the finish shoot when i got there and he said let me take your bike i'm gonna wash it and whatever and i said i'm gonna take it back with me i think i'm done Mm -hmm. And he said, do not do that. He said, don't take your bike. You won't come back. And I said, nah, I'm just going to think about it. I just, I just, was, mm-hmm. I just wanted to get out of there at that point. Yeah. And I just left my stinking bike on course Yeah. I, and the, in the corrals there, because I definitely would have woken up the next day. Even if I was a little bit late, I worked for the company. Who cares? I could, I could, I would have right. been fine. And I would have, even if it took me six or seven hours to finish day three, I would have done it. And Leadville would have been this tremendous success story for me where I was, you know, far too much overweight. I committed to this race. I announced it. And even though I barely made it, and even if I had had the slowest Leadville time in history, I would have fit. And it would have been a wonderful moment in my life. And instead it's the opposite. And so, you know, there's success and failure and learnings from failure and all that stuff. It, it taught me a lot. And I liked that I fell on my face with that race because then I realized, okay, yeah. Now I know. Now I know what not to do next time. I would manage nutrition wildly different next time around. And the biggest thing is, if I had gotten a stinking bottle of Tylenol PM right. for six bucks and and forced myself to sleep both those nights, I think I would have made a different choice on day two. And two years later, yeah. I wouldn't be 
I would have a different story to tell you on your podcast about perseverance and pushing through and breaking down the wall and whatever. And instead, you know, my, my, my version one of Leadville is I experienced failure. I did, I did, I DNF'd for the first time ever. I I didn't make it for a variety of reasons, almost all of which, or actually all of which were self-imposed. I just, I made mistakes. I didn't train nearly hard enough, even though I thought I was training hard enough at the time. I didn't have a coach. I did not have a plan for nutrition. I just had a bunch of nutrition and stuff like that. And I, and I, and I jumped into this elite world-class level event. And so I kind of, I kind of deserved to have a bad experience because of how I managed it, but it, it just, it taught me so much about all of these, these things that I'm, I'm grateful for. So where do you think that mistake came from? Cause I've known you a while now. You're a, you're a prepared kind of guy. I mean, you, you know, you don't take things lightly. You don't just jump into things where, why do you think it was that you, you didn't put in the, whether it was work or, or uh, recon or uh, research or whatever it was like, well, I, I guess I, I think it's just ignorance is the answer. Like I, I thought I did, you know, like my research on nutrition was um, I read the back of the label of whatever goo I was having or, or whatever. It says, take one of these every two hours. But I, I, I just didn't, I didn't, I wasn't proactive enough to put in the, the research that, well, if you're, if you're performing at a high cadence at 12,000 feet, yeah. You should really take one of those every 40 minutes or so. Yeah. Uh, some solid food in order to keep it down plus whatever. And like I said, I just, yeah. I, I wasn't an endurance athlete. I had done, I had done a full marathon would have been the longest race I had done to that point. Yeah. And that full marathon, that full marathon was certainly difficult, but it, it, it's, it was 10% of what Leadville was. I just, I didn't really, I just didn't really understand the um, caliber of that event. And so even though I went through kind of what I would say is like a traditional training, putting in 50 and 60 mile training rides, but I should have done a hundred repeats on a one mile climb here in just to, just to, you know, break myself on just the Hills. I was wildly unprepared for, for the climbing and I'm a good mountain biker. I, I know what I'm doing. I've been mountain biking forever. I'm a good technical mountain biker. I'm, I'm good downhill all those things. I had the right equipment. I just, I just was plain and simple unprepared. And I was probably, I would guess I was probably embarrassed to ask Mm. the the people that I would ask those kinds of questions. What should my nutrition plan be? Blah, blah, blah. Cause I I would have stayed away from online. I would have, I would have wanted to seek that advice from people. Those, those same people were all friends and colleagues. And I think I already felt like kind of the fat kid in the race. And I probably, I probably hesitated to ask some of those things so that I didn't seem yeah. unprepared or, or something like that, which just compounded the problem even further. Yeah. And for those listening, the uh, Leadville, because it's owned by Lifetime, whether, whether we're talking about the mini Minnesota uh, HQ of Lifetime or certainly our offices in Colorado, Leadville became this I don't know, like it, it it had lost its mystique, I think, within our four walls. Like everybody was doing Silver Rush, Leadville Heavy Half, you know, they were doing races at Leadville. And so you, um, I think we've all been sort of lulled to sleep and into forgetting that this is a literal world-class, one of the hardest races to to complete 
but because so many people that we just, you know, talked to, you know, so, you know, Drew just ran the Leadville 100 and then was, you know, at his desk Monday morning, like nothing had happened, you know, and you see this, you know, week after week after week, all summer long, where you've got, you know, the people that you work with that you're, you know, shoulder to shoulder with completing these different races. And it's very easy to take that for granted and uh, forgetting that, you know, this is Leadville. I mean, this is Leadville. It is a different beast. Um, And so I, you know, look, I, I think it's a, I've always learned a lot more obviously from my failures than my successes. And I've had a ton of them in races. Um, and it's, it like you, when I first started doing tries, I was so like by the book I did, you know, the, I recon the courses. I would, you know, two nights before the race, make sure I got X amount of sleep. I'd begin hydrating. And then, you know, like your second rate, you, it, that starts to die off. You do less and less preparation until you find yourself sort of like, oh, geez, I didn't do anything to prepare for this thing. And it shows in your performance. So uh, what's the what's the plan? Uh, are you going to do it again? Do you, do you want to do it again? Would you do the whole hundred? Would you do the stage race? Pick a different venue? I, I would like to do stage race again. And I, I think it's, I was intending to do it in 2020 one because i turned 40 in 2021 it just it just seemed like a good yeah it seemed like a good um uh rising of the phoenix thing in my in my heart since it since it beat me last time to have that milestone event in in life as like the hey i, I came back and knocked that one out yeah um I, I that's 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 my intent is the short answer and that's what i would really like to do is i'd, I'd like to take a shot at again in, in 2021 yeah uh, any other, um, any other pursuits athletically beyond that? Um, have you gotten into the virtual stuff? Have you done any virtual races since this whole thing started? I, I have not, but mostly just because I've occupied myself elsewhere. I just, I just haven't wanted to touch a, a virtual race. I, I haven't done it personally. Um, I've never really done a trail race of any kind. So it's all been road racing in my, my running background. And I have this weird love hate relationship with, with running where I'll, I'll go through a six or seven month period where I'm diehard and I get really into it. And then I'll, something will, something will flip and I just can't stand it for a while. And I'll, I'll go completely the direction and just embrace the bikes or, or whatever. But I'd, I'd like to do, you know, I'd like to do a 10 K trail race or, or an off-road triathlon or something like that sometime in, um, in 2021, hopefully as a uh, training for Leadville state race. Yeah, let's do uh, let's do Xterra Beaver Creek. We'll do that one together. It's uh, same same corridor off the seventy up there. Yeah, we used to have an Xterra here in Richmond that went away a couple of years ago, I think. But I've, I've always been drawn to that one. It's got a great aesthetic, and then it's just it's more my yeah style. I, I just I, my my future in racing is going to be small. I, I'm not I'm not I'm not built for it, and I think maybe because it's so much a part of my job. I don't really seek out races that much in my personal life. It feels a little bit like, like work to me, but whatever I, I do participate in the future. I'm 99% sure it'll be on, on dirt of some kind. Those are my current favorites. That's what I enjoy the most. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that last piece. I I have a theory. Um, When you first went over to race it, you had mentioned that you were doing some five and 10 Ks you built up to the marathon. Did you, did you race more or less once you started working in the industry? Less dramatically less. <laughs> yeah. My my full marathon was prior to joining yeah. race. Yeah, that was the last year before I joined 
race. And a lot of the, maybe it's because not as many of the races I go to are on dirt that I, I, they seem more interesting to me. I don't know how many races I've been to, whether it's a 5k, a 10, a half a full, whatever <clears throat> triathlon. I, I would guess I've been to 250 of them, yeah. 300. I don't know, but, um, I still love them. But what I love about them now is I, I love the operational aspect of the races. Like I love seeing, Oh, this race does their start line this way, their finish line this way. They do, they do this kind of party 10. Oh, look, this is where they do the reunions with kids. I just, I just, the, the, the they're like wonderful festivals of, ha- of athletic happiness to me. Yeah. And I love being around the races, but if somebody says, Hey, you want to do a turkey trot on Thanksgiving with me? I'm like, Nope. No, thanks. Yeah. Then, nah, it just feels like work. I'm not, I'm not <laughs> yeah. It's so strange. I mean, we, you can, we, we've, we've actually done this before. We plotted everybody's, uh, Athlinks profiles after they start working for whatever company in the industry and it just falls off a table. Yeah. So folks, if you, uh, if you love racing, maybe working in the industry isn't the best, uh, option for you, but, um, but it is yeah. great. I mean, it's, I love, you know, I, uh, I took a few years off of going to running USA and the different conferences and I went back this year and I, I realized how much I had missed it. Like I, I really do love the, the industry side, not just, you know, watching the athletes, um, uh, themselves, but just kind of watching it all come together at an industry level. Um, I kind of, I, I'm like you, I, I kind of accidentally got into the endurance space. And so, um, you know, I'm, it, it's kind of like you hear a lot of the, uh, like some of the best ultra runners these days are people who did not run in high school and the theories, you know, you'd like saved your knees, you didn't get burned out and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I, I think, I think people like you is, it's kind of a similar thing. Like you get into it later and you, you just have so much more enthusiasm for the space. You're not jaded. You don't know kind of all the, you know, inside baseballs type stuff that had gone on over the last few decades. And so, um, it's, uh, Oh, did I lose you? Did you freeze up on me? You're muted. Did you re? re oh, you're still muted. Having some technical. There we go. We got you. I think. Yep. Can you hear me? Okay. Yep. Sorry I got you that. back. No. No worries. I had no to plug worries. in a power cord here. I was about to lose my laptop. No worries. No worries at all. So I got one for you. What's um? What What are you What are you hoping this podcast? brings to people what's the what's the objective of it so for athletes it's always been about uh you know more people racing more often having more fun in the process i i I was uh you know i i think i'm a pretty outgoing person i was a a good athlete growing up so i had very few barriers to doing my first event and yet it took me years to do so i'd been fascinated by Ironman and triathlon in general, you know, watching all the NBC, um, wide world of sports stuff and just the stories and the pageantry and all that stuff of Ironman. But it, it took me, I don't know, I mean, a decade to do my first race and what it took for me was exposure. So it was stopping at a triathlon that was going on on my way home. I saw it happening in Tempe town Lake. I pulled over, I went down, I talked to a bunch of, uh, finishers and you know it kind of confirmed my uh my suspicions that you had to be a six foot three hundred and thirty pound gazelle to do a triathlon and then 10 minutes later all of a sudden a whole different group of people started crossing that finish line and it was like oh geez louise 
you know, that I was wrong this whole time that I've been so afraid and intimidated by, um, you know, whether it was marathon, triathlon, any of this stuff, cyclocross, mountain biking, um, it just seemed so, um, elite, I guess. I don't know. Um, and so I just, I stayed away from it and I missed out on some great experiences over the years. And so when I started Athlinks, one was to solve a problem just from a technical side, but the kind of emotional side of that was just, again, more people racing more often, having more fun in the process through exposure, through ease of use. And the podcast is an extension of that mission. I think with COVID, certainly our industry has been decimated. So part of this is a very practical business decision to just, you know, we know a lot of people in the industry, we have access to some great stories. And I would love to use our platform to tell those stories. Um, but also it's, uh, you know, until things come back, uh, this certainly doesn't hurt us to get some exposure on this side. So I think once, once racing does come back, I think, you know, the, uh, the story, like just now we just told a story about your Leadville experience from two years ago. I would love yeah. to be, I would love to be having this conversation, you know, two hours after you cross your next finish line, you know, that when you do complete, uh, you know, the stage race, I'd, I'd love to be at a bar with you two hours later talking about how pumped you are, you know, for crossing that finish line. So it's, it's pretty simple. You know, this is, this is a, a the format we're going to be using, you know, 60 to 90 minute interviews. We'd love for folks to take us on their long run or their, you know, their ride for the day, um, stick us in their ear and, you know, let's just talk about training and racing and balancing family and work with, with training and racing and, you know, getting, getting hopefully inspired by, by people out there doing it. And, uh, you know, that's, that's pretty much it, you know? Yeah. <clears throat> well, I think it's a good mission. I think it's absolutely perfect timing for it with, I guess with the COVID state of things, but also just going into the dreariness of winter and things like that, just some, something to be hands-free driving or riding or running or whatever. And the, the sense of normalcy and the, um, just pure positivity of this, this industry, especially because what you're doing is very focused on the athletes. It's just, I think it's very well timed. I think it's needed. There's not a lot else going on um, similar to this. I don't, I don't see. And uh, I just, I just think it's really well, really, really good. I, I commend you for giving it a crack and starting right now under difficult circumstances. Yeah. It's kind of, uh, I, I think I, I, um, I think within about a week of owning my first uh, gravel bike, I did a cyclocross race. So I, I like the, I like the jumping in side of things. So for some reason, I mean, we've been talking about doing a podcast on athletics for 10 years and I don't know why we didn't, frankly, we, we, um, we sponsored, I am talk for years. I love the format. I listened to a ton of podcasts and frankly, it was, um, it was the format that kept me away. Um, I'm not a big, um, like inside baseball, I'm not an endurance journalist. I don't, I don't follow the elites. I don't know who's going to win an Ironman from one week to the next type of thing. It's just not really my passion in the, yeah. in the space. Um, and so, and that's what, that's frankly what this podcast is not going to be. So it's, you know, we're not gonna, um, there's some great, you know, let's run and some other really phenomenal podcasts that really follow in depth. If you, if you want to sort of, see journalism at that level. I think those are going to be great. Really, it's it's the every person. It's the, 
you know, it's the weekend warrior. It's the person coming back from injury, the person who never thought they could cross a start line, much less a finish line. Um, frankly, you're the, you're the perfect guest in terms of, you know, you, you, you went from not thinking you could do a thing. You got the guts to try the thing. Maybe you failed the first time. Um, you know, but then you have the, the bug to, to pick yourself up, dust yourself off and, and to try it again. So, and, and there's, there's just millions of those stories. And, and as you look at, you know, whether it's, whether it's COVID or, or the economy or marriage or whatever else it is, the, the number one, I think, indicator of happiness for humans is, is, is health. You know, your ability to deal with stress and, and all of those things are directly tied to your fitness level, your health levels. And so anything that we can do in that pursuit to get, you know, more people racing more often, having more fun in the process, meaning more healthy people out there um, who, you know, in turn are better employees and husbands and wives and sons and daughters and aunts and uncles and all of those things, then, then that's that's um, that's what we've certainly dedicated the business to and, and um continue to do so well first of all i hope you continue to do so for a long time second i agree with what you said a minute ago i am indeed the perfect guest for this podcast (laughs) 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 but i'll be tough to follow for sure but who's who's up next what do you what do you tackle next what kind of topics or guests are yeah, we've got a, a few good ones lined up. Actually, the, we I the next guest up is a husband and wife. I won't. Um, uh, well, I'll say uh, so. Lindsay and Chris Sachs. They are um, Colorado residents. Lindsay had um, Lindsay has a very similar story to you in the uh, Leadville One Hundred. Um, ran up against some obstacles recently last year. Completed the. Um, uh, oh, it's dropping. It just dropped out of my mind. It was a hundred mile, uh, uh, running race in Arizona. Uh, it wasn't lost Dutchman. It's a different one. And I just completely blanked on it. It'll come back to me. Um, so, uh, really kind of, a big focus of that conversation is going to be balancing, uh, marriage and racing and running. They're both two pretty elite, uh, athletes in their own regards. They have, uh, a uh, new little one uh, around the house. And so just kind of talking to them about how they've balanced that in, uh, in their lives. Uh, I've got uh, some uh, and different stories, uh, a pair of um, gals that did the, I don't remember how it's pronounced, Odilo, which was the, uh, the long format swim run, kind of ultra swim run in, on Catalina. It's the oh, one, yeah. Yeah, Perarni. Yeah, the Norwegian one. Yep. yep. So Jen Pfeiffer and Erica McClure are going to come on and, and talk about their experience there. We talked to Jen before she did the race, and so I'm really curious to kind of hear those two <laughs> talk about how they were tethered together. Uh, it's a really interesting format of a race. Like you run with your uh, swim gear, and then yeah. you swim with your run gear, like in a in a bag you're trailing behind. Uh, we're going to have chemo on. Um, we've got a, a few other people lined up. So. Um, you know, as, uh, as time goes on, we'll, we'll, we'll sort of find our niche here, but, um, for those listening, please email us at, uh, podcast at athlinks.com. If you have ideas for, uh, different guests you'd love to see come on and, uh, we would love to have them on. Yeah. I have a, I have a few, actually I have a few, I probably have about 20 people that I think 
are maybe fly below the radar, but really interesting people in this industry. Most of them have phenomenal either current or historical stories about how all this came about and why it's so important to them and yeah. trials and tribulations. I'll, I'll, I'll give you a few recommendations or submissions as well. Perfect. I would love to, uh, love to have those on. So, um, all right, well, we're right at about 90 minutes here, so it has been, it's been very real. Thanks for coming. I am, I'm honored to have been a guest. That was fun. I hope that hour and a half went pretty quick. So hopefully it was good for your listeners there, but that's all I got. Thanks very much for the chance to come out and speak. Oh, absolutely. It was, uh, 100% my pleasure. I hope uh, everybody listening enjoyed spending a little over an hour with you. Um, definitely want to have you back after you go out and conquer Leadville Stage Race, uh, hopefully next year, hopefully hopefully this next coming summer. Be sure to follow us on our socials. We are at Athlinks pretty much across the board. And so uh, spread the word far and wide. And again, email us at podcast at athlinks.com if you got some ideas for next guests. Happy racing, everybody. <laughs>